Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a broadcaster and a writer, and I'm your chief investigator of images. I am joined by dear friend, Professor Frank McDonough. Now, we've known each other virtually through Twitter for a long time. Yes, <laughs> that's it, true. It's lovely to be in a room with you. And we're going to be talking about something very exciting today. We're doing Picasso, who has not appeared yet on the Art Detective podcast. So you've got an absolute winner of a choice here, Frank. Um, but first off, introduce yourself. Well, I'm Professor Frank McDonough. I suppose my unique selling point is that I'm a Scouser, but I went to Balliol College, Oxford. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> I like to do that too. I went to, I grew up in Slav, I still go to university at Oxford. Well done, you. And I, I mainly write about the Third Reich and I mainly write about the interwar period. And I've written books on the origins of the First and Second World Wars. And I wrote a, a biography of Sophie Scholl. Uh, recently, I wrote a, a book that was very successful about the Gestapo. And I'm writing a big mega history of the period. Uh, of the of the era of the Third Reich for and, my next book. And you're also, I mean, you're, you, you're very modest because you're internationally uh, recognised as as somebody who sees the, the war period in, in a different way. You view it in your own unique way, don't you? The causes and the... I think my contribution is that I sort of take the myths of what we, of the, of the, of the periods and try and bring about what really happened. And I think I did that in the previous book on the Gestapo, where everybody had this image of the Gestapo that they, they, you know, they beat everybody up, you know. <laughs> and then in my book, I show actually they didn't beat everybody up. Right. They beat real targeted victims up, like Jews and communists. But if you were ordinary German, they treated you pretty well, actually. Mm. You uh, know, they, they were trying. They were trying to find ways to actually release you rather than put you in a concentration camp. So I, I really go in for that kind of history, you know, rooted in sources, but trying to sort of give people a kind of more nuanced approach to history, really. Absolutely. Human beings, individuals, exactly. as opposed to collective myths. And also, I'm very interested in the idea of, of a human being trapped in this world of the Third Reich. That's what drew me towards Sophie Scholl, an ordinary young woman, a university student, and yet she stood up to Hitler. So that, that sort of 
it, you can really identify with that. Mm. And it's definitely the way history is going, isn't it? We're, we're sort of over these <laughs> collective group identities and we're trying to find voices in the yeah, past. I think we're we? looking for, you know, stories, individuals. What did they do? What contribution did they do? In my Gestapo book, it's sort of a lot of stories about ordinary people. You know, in that book, there are, you know, there are love affairs that go wrong. There are people who denounce their neighbours. There's a husband and wife who denounce each other, etc. It's that kind of, you know, there's it, it's it's that human sort of um, denunciation that's fascinating. That people would denounce people to get an advantage. Mm, I mean, it's a complex web of emotions yeah. and, and relationships, yeah. and that's one of the things that we sometimes don't appreciate when we study wartime. That it is this web of people, uh, but I, but that's why I adore your work, Frank. And I do your your approach. You're also fabulous on Twitter because you do your daily history, don't you? <laughs> Which but, <laughs> is every day it lights up. <laughs> well, I, I kind of like it because I think that if you go on Twitter and you start talking about, you know, Brexit or, you know, whatever is in the news, you know, and, and I, 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 when I was originally on Twitter, I did a bit of that, you know, and, and people would say things like, oh, give it a rest, Frank. <laughs> you know, so I, I just do concentrate on on the, the daily uh, facts. I try to find some quirky facts, and you know there are some facts. There. There's a lot of research has gone into those facts. I can tell, and, and so, the amount of time you must put into it. But I respect it and appreciate it. But also, you're you're and wonderful. They're about ninety nine point nine percent right as well, which is good. But yeah. But also, you're you're very good. You're very diverse, and you're constantly citing you know modern popular culture. But you're interested in music. You're interested, presumably, in art, which is yeah, why we're yeah, here yeah. today. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And have you? I really like modern art actually well this is what i was gonna say what sort so what sort of artists and artworks do you enjoy you know like the dada movement Mm. and and sort of those like um clee and people like that from the from the weimar period i like all of that i like art that sort of you've got to think about it you know i mean i actually don't i I quite like the unmade bed Mm, i love the unmade bed I, i went to an exhibition in toronto it was a modern art gallery in toronto and it was based on this guy. He just does art with glass. I don't know his name. He does art with glass and sand. Yeah. Yeah. And you could just talk about it, you know, like deconstruct it. So I quite like the kind of deconstruction of art, really. What does this mean? Exactly. So we've got in front of us the actual painting of Guernica by Pablo Picasso. Well, this is it. When I said to you, Frank, what do you want to do for Art Detective? You came back immediately with Guernica. And it is iconic. It is incredibly well known wrapped in scholarship, in complexity, in contradictory views. But, I mean, it is so important as an artwork, isn't it? Why did you choose it? I think I chose it because the overhanging theme of the interwar period, the new weapon, really. Well, there were two new weapons, really, that people worried about. One was the tank Mm. and the other one was the aircraft. Because, okay, aircraft had been in towards the end of the First World War, but there were no really major civilian bombings. But... As they said about the Second World War, you know, um, you know, the bomber will always get through. It was known that if there was a Second World War, there would be bombing of civilian targets, and people thought civilians would be, you know, killed on a massive basis. So Guernica, which happened in April 1937, you know, at the height of the Spanish Civil War, um, you know, when when Spain was sort of fighting this civil war between the re- the Republicans, uh, mainly on the left, that they'd been elected. 
democratically. And who challenged them but a group of army officers led by General Francisco Franco, and he was on the other side. And this this war became a massive it was it was a kind of massive conflagration, sort of like I would say it's the Vietnam of the 1930s, because what happened was, you know, all kinds of people fought on both sides. You've got people like George Orwell goes and fights. That's one of the things uh, we forget as well. You know, you've got people coming in. They empathise, they connect. Ernest Hemingway went to fight. You know, so you've got like sort of, you've got this amazing sort of conflict. And also remember, it's the first time that the fascist uh, leaders, Hitler and Mussolini, get involved in a war. <laughs> and on the other side, you've got the Republicans. I think you've got the um, the Republicans. And, of course, Stalin gets in on their side. So you've, got, you've really got the ideological struggle of the 1930s. And what does Britain and France do? They stay neutral. Stay neutral. So there's the appeasement policy of the 1930s. So all in one particular war, you've got sort of everything, really. And you've got the shape of things to come. I mean, it's H.G. Wells wrote a book in... 1933, called The Shape of Things to Come. And in that book, he says, in 1940, there'll be another war. I think he says it's started by a pole. Good shoots, Yeah, a pole gets shot. Yeah. And what's what's done is that the Nazis exploit that to start the war. It's very much what happens, actually. Good grief. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? That you feel zeitgeists, you feel movements. And, and the Spanish Civil War, you're absolutely right. It is like a miniaturized version of what's to come. But it's so destructive to Spain. It, and it, its legacy is huge. I mean, I've got, um, I'm married there, to a yeah. Spaniard. And, there. you know, it, they, they all talk his family about yeah. Growing up under Franco regime, and it was in- incredibly oppressive. And of course, Guernica is a Basque town. There you go. So you know that you couldn't have anything you know sort of more resonant than that, and that's why Guernica has stayed in the memory so much. And of course, Picasso when when it, Picasso was commissioned to uh, to 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 make this painting by the Republican movement, and, he, and he it was a- supposed to be exhibited at the World's Fair, nineteen thirty-seven. That's right. I so say it was an expression of the Repu- of the Republican well, movement yeah. on a world's platform. But what's really interesting, I found as well, was Picasso at the time when he was commissioned. He was he had this wonderful um, title of director in exile of the Prado because, of course, he'd he'd left. He'd left in thirty four, um, and and he's working in, in and around France at this point. But this idea that actually people were running away from what they could see, from the yeah. fascism, from the destruction of what they could see. Paint a little bit of a picture of what it must have been like in Spain at, in, at this time in the sort of mid-30s going into the 30s. Well, I think that, you know, Spain, obviously, there was this idea, you know, the fascism was on the march. And I think that, you know, Franco's movement just wouldn't accept the democratic election. As we know, Vietnam was rather similar, wasn't it? <laughs> it was just rather similar. They wouldn't accept communists being elected. And in a way, Chile was the same. Yeah. So really what you've got here is something that was democratic uh, and, and on the side of democracy, the two biggest, the three biggest democratic countries, which are Britain, France and America, don't get involved. They stay outside of it. So it, so therefore, they say that because Britain and France remain neutral, it meant that the, the backing that they were getting from Mussolini and Hitler tipped the scales right. in favour of Franco. So Franco wouldn't have won the war without, actually, this Condor Legion. The Condor Legion, who, who actually... Um, they instigated the attack on Guernica. Explain a bit um, more about the Condor Legion. The Condor Legion was, well, what happened was Hitler didn't openly say that he was involved in the Spanish Civil War. 
what he did was he created a kind of um, like a holding company uh, to pretend that he called them the Condor Legion. He had this kind of holding company that was using the Luftwaffe planes. Oh. And to sort of try and suggest that he wasn't really involved in the war itself. But of course, Guernica brought it out quite clearly that these were Luftwaffe planes. And there was there was hell because the Times actually said that, you know, uh, uh, Hitler bombs Guernica and he went mad. There was a di- there was a diplomatic incident. You know, the ambassador complained to um, to the government at the time, to uh, to the Baldwin government. And the Times was castigated and saying, they, they, he said, you know, the Luftwaffe isn't there. Who said the Luftwaffe were there? So they actually even denied that they were involved in the actual attack, which oh, is amazing. No. So so let's go to April 37. Let's uh, set the scene. We're in the Basque region. We're in a village called Guernica, which is where this, this event takes place. And it's a, a bomb, uh, an, an air it's raid, a bomb it? It's a Luftwaffe bomb attack. It's the first major attack on civilians, you know, in the interwar period. So it really is a big, it's a big event because, you know, people are terrified because people are worried by now. Remember, Hitler's well on the rise. He's already marched into uh, the Rhineland in 1936. So people are frightened of Hitler that he's on the road to war. People like Churchill are giving speeches, warning of it. And on the other side, you've got people like Neville Chamberlain, the appeasers who are saying, oh, we can't get involved in this. So in a way, you've got you've got that kind of appeasement side, which is Britain and France standing sort of on the sidelines. And Stalin decides to get in with the Republicans. <laughs> You know, so that so, and then on the one side you got so you've got really, you know, people say, oh, you know, in the end, the Second World War, when you look at it, was an ideological struggle between communism and national socialism, really, because as mm, we know, mm. Mussolini was was basically a big poser, wasn't he? Yeah, was like, like yeah. really, he had nothing behind him. You know, he said, "I'll go to war with you." He said on the. 9th of May sends Hitler a letter and he says, oh, Fiora, I will go to war with you tomorrow. I'll declare war mm. on you tomorrow. And then when when, <laughs> when he when he gets the letter, Hitler turns to one, to one of his assistants. I think he, he turns to Ribbentrop and he said, we don't even need his help. <laughs> and he, he said, we know his boasting amounts to nothing. Yeah. And then the next day, Hitler would, you know, write a flagrant letter saying, oh, your letter moved me so much. I mean, <laughs> their letters to each other, which are still in the archives, are very funny. Are they? Because, yeah, because cause Hitler was sort of like, I, I think you'd say if they were a pop group, <laughs> then, you know, Hitler was the Beatles and Mussolini was Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> because he, he was, but, but that's how it turned out. But it didn't didn't start like that. Hitler started out as Oasis. turned into the Beatles because oh he started out copying Mussolini right. and aping him. Yeah. And then in the end, the power Shifters. switch shifted. And by 1940, he's incredibly obsequious to really? him. Really? Yeah. But I mean, that's uh, this is what interests me. So you've got these power, this power play going on over there. Franco, in many ways, what's going on with Franco and what's going on with the civil war, because it is still a civil war rather yes, than yeah, yeah, this international yeah. thing, is um, it, it's much, it's gritty, it's uh, um, guerrilla tactics, it's on the ground, it's it's an unpleasant form of warfare, yeah. isn't it? Oh, yeah, it goes on for three years and it basically is, it starts that kind of thing that went on in the on Eastern Europe, this fighting, you know, this street fighting. Exactly. As you said, guerrilla, you know, house to house. And we didn't really get that in the Second World War. The Second World War has two phases. The first part of the war is just the Blitzkrieg. Mm-hmm. 
And there's no, you know, face-to-face contact between the German soldiers. The only time they actually fight real soldiers is the Red Army in Stalingrad and places like that where they've got them right in your face. And the truth is, for all of the power of the Wehrmacht and people say, oh, what a fantastic army they were. They weren't that good at house-to-house fighting. Mm-hmm. The Red Army proved to be fantastic. And that's the turning point, isn't it, essentially? In, you, no, in that's your the face, difference. basically. Yeah. The Second World War was fought right in your face. Mm. And in the end, the Russians were good at that. They were good at that sort of uh, man-to-man combat, you know. And there was a lot of that. But there was a lot of that in this war, you know. Well, and this that's is why. It. And, this and is of why... course, it's the Basque country. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the painting, what fascinates me about this painting is that it's almost like a photograph, right? You know, because it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. So it's actually, it's actually. I think it, that was the influence of it. That the, mm. he was influenced by this photographic school of art. He was, and I think the other thing is um, that that this is one of the, the influences that you can see. There's there's actually typescript in there. There's bits yeah. of printed uh, printed type because he heard about the attack on Guernica. Uh, via papers, via print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and also they're getting moving images, early black and white film, and photographs in yeah. black and white. And and that that is something that we don't see in art. I think one of the reasons Guernica is so effective is the absence of colour. It is black, yeah, it is, white, yeah. and grey. But also it, it exemplifies, there's a lot of Spanish influences here. For, for example, the bull. Mm-hmm. You couldn't get anything more Spanish than the bull. Mm. And then you've got the horse. Yeah. So and got actually you've got a second horse. Hall, uh, if you uh, there's a couple of hidden yeah. objects within it. Yeah. Uh, there's a skull that comes out from the back of the uh, bull. Yeah. But also the shape of the horse's front leg makes a bull as well. Yeah. So there's sort of two bulls yeah. in there. Obviously symbols of Spanish identity. And the screaming woman. There's the screaming woman. And there's the sort of the soldier who's got. I think is he had been decapitated. He's got his arm. He's got his cut arm off and cut this off. Is yeah, graphic. that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, you can see the bone, and then it's still grasping a broken yeah. sword. I mean, it's so tragic. And I think it's supposed to represent the middle of the bomb attack. Yeah, that these people are actually experiencing this bomb attack. I mean, you got the guy over here. He's he seems screaming. Absolutely, and and there is, I think, the suggestion of a plane. Yeah, uh, an aeroplane flying in because I suppose that's one of the most terrifying things about this attack. It's coming from the air. Yeah, um, it's one of the first, uh, one of these major bomb attacks from the air. Would you say? But it, it is the first it major the bomb first. attack from the air. But what, what's interesting was Picasso, of course, lived in Paris. He never went back to Spain. No, he lived in Paris. But of course, the controversial bit about Picasso is that he lived in Paris during the Nazi occupation. Mm -hmm. From what we know, he he was always a communist and he remained a communist all his life. But what's interesting is that he had some friends in the German army used to come round to his apartment. And I think one evening, one of the German officers looked at the painting and he said, "Uh, did you do that? He said to Picasso. He said, no, you did that. (gasps) (laughs) That's an amazing story. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But that he is a controversial figure. He'll always be a controversial figure and, and deliberately ambiguous. He, he says about this painting... Well, all you can what because lots of people want to know what the horse and the bull symbolise. He yeah. does a series of sketches before he does Guernica, which show Franco um, as uh, first of all devouring the his own horse, eating yeah, his own yeah, horse, and yeah. then eating the bull of yeah. Spain. And I think that lots of people have said, you know, this is representing Franco and oppression. Yeah, yeah. But he just said it's a horse and a bull. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you right, see yeah. anything yeah, else, yeah, that's yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is typical yeah. Picasso. But also Picasso is sort of the archetypal champagne socialist, isn't there he? Because go. he he was he was well up on commercializing his work, wasn't he? He had, he had sort of agents and people like that when he was in Paris and Vienna. And he made a lot of money, didn't he? He things? made a lot of money. And he was very clever about how he distributed through print form in particular. At yeah. the end, he was just signing yeah. canvases and signing yeah, paper yeah. and then and, just uh, yeah. anything was being yeah. put out in his name. But it, it gets quite tragic. But I think at this point, this is, his, this is his legacy piece, isn't it? This is what people know him for. It's enormous. We should add that in. It's, it's very um, large, yeah. Three and a half metres by seven, yeah, nearly yeah, eight yeah, metres. Yeah, it's yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's full of impact. Um, as we said, I mean, it's unusual because there's no colour. In war scenes, we're used to seeing yeah. graphic blood and drama. I think what we get from this painting, if you look at it, there's a kind of it, it's it's the chaos of bombing i mean people forget you know when they talk about the blitz and things like that you know it was psychologically really you know really terrifying you know to think that that night you could be killed in a bomb attack and then when the bomb attack happened you know we like to think of oh you know the great plucky british spirit but it was chaotic mm. you know there was riots you know when when they bombed coventry and places like that you know there was there were riots, there was looting that went on. Even down, they say, oh, you know, the lovely London Underground and all that. But, you know, all kinds <laughs> yeah, everyone of... Everyone singing and drinking of, tea, yeah, but yeah. no. <laughs> Not if you were a woman. There was all kinds of sexual assaults going on of, exactly. of drunken men exactly. coming out. Imagine sort of, you know, 10,000 drunken men coming out of a pub, going down the underground that's full of women. You know, mm -hmm. can you imagine what happens? But we have this thing, oh, are they all there, you know, doing the Lambeth walk yeah, exactly. and doing the okey cokey <laughs> and all this. And, and what there was was a lot of fights and things totally. like that. So war is chaos, you know, war is chaos. And I think really this is the start of the really big sort of bomb attacks that we had during the Blitz, of course, in London, Liverpool, Glasgow. I mean, I've been in a bunker in uh, war bunker. There was a whole sequence of war bunkers in Barcelona, which was for sub sequences of civil war attacks, but also bomb, bomb attacks from the air. And they are dark, scary, yeah. cold, 
horrible places to be. And you're right, you know, we forget the psychological impact. Again, we tend to get so wrapped up in battle dates and logistics. This is human suffering. Yeah. It's pain. And it's it's claustrophobic. It's the discomfort and the fear of war, isn't it? Yeah. And also the casualty rates. More people died in, in blitz raids on London, certain blitz raids, than died at Guernica. And, of course, when you go on to some of the big German cities that were bombed, I'm thinking of Hamburg, you know, 400,000 people were killed. <laughs> in Hamburg over about three or four days. And in 1945, of course, Dresden, you know. Dresden, yeah. 22,000 people were killed and the whole town was sort of raised to the ground. So in a way, and of course, further on from this, you've got the apocalypse of uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So in a way, I, I see it as a kind of, it's a, to me, it's, it's a doorway to the horror that's going to happen in the Second World War. This is that doorway to that horror. I mean, we see it, don't we, in those paintings of the trenches mm. in the First World War. There's a very famous paintings of a guy who, who did the trenches. And, and this is like resonance of another type of war, a modern war. Mm. Here's a modern expression of it because this is modern art. This isn't just straightforward portrait painting. And this also points the way, doesn't it, towards the modernist period, you know. I mean, you know, that could be an album cover. It could. It's, it's, it? But it's because it's about a new role for art. I mean, you've got photography that captures reality. You've got film that you can capture actual physical yeah, movement. Yeah. But what Picasso is showing is that only art can show this sort of um, individual interpretation of pain and suffering. And by abstracting it, by making it unrealistic, it's more of a, a statement of humanity, a, a statement of, of you, know, a, a general feel rather than a specific moment. And and it's called cool, Guernica, and it's clearly related to the bombing. But it's it's a bigger statement about. The suffering of war, isn't it? Yeah, That's yeah. why it's got yeah. this iconic well, legacy. Well, it's a, it basically fundamentally it's anti-war. Mm. It's sort of a great, you know, description of of anti-war. It is, and you would use this as an example of, you know, how art could reflect something that was anti-war. Um, in a modernist way. Mm. And, and that's why I think it's significant. And, of course, Picasso himself is a significant figure. You know, he's one of the figures of the 20th century. And the fact that he painted this, and, I mean, we know, don't we, you know, great art, you know, suffered in the Second World War because it was pretty hard to be an artist, for example, in Eastern Europe, Hell for example. Yeah. Poland was literally destroyed. The whole the whole country didn't was exist. didn't exist. <laughs> you know, and then Russia went the same way. Yeah. And really we didn't have, you know, remember in the First World War, what we've got to remember is that there was those trenches. So behind those trenches, it was very quiet. You could do a bit of poetry. Absolutely. You, could do, you couldn't do a poetry in a, you couldn't do poetry in a tank. <laughs> <laughs> ah, be, you know, be rather, or, rather yeah, chaotic. Flying a Messerschmitt. There are no RAF poets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, you haven't got or the comfort artists, of sitting you know, in, we, in a church. But it's, it's, it's an interesting aspect of art created in times of, of drama and intensity and war in particular. Yeah. I think um, the impacts of the world wars on art were felt after the world yeah. wars but we've got something that's right poised on the edge it's um it's coming out of one into another yeah but also firmly rooted in this civil war that's taking place in spain yeah um and it's of its time it's off its but, time but, but, but it's, it's but it's sort of before it's time yeah yes because it, it's kind of sort of projecting onto it's almost something that should be should have been it's 30 years ahead of its time in terms of its 
symbolism. It's, well, uh, it's almost pop arty in elements, yeah, which yeah. is a, a, absolutely exactly, thirty yeah, yeah, exactly, elements time. Yeah. But then there's these wonderful. I think you're right about um, about the fact that this is essentially pacifistic. This is about peace is better than war, and there is a dove in there, and there is. Um, could be the start of a David Bowie video, couldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's got a cinematic it's got quality. That, yeah, it's got that too. And the fact yeah, that this yeah. is a mural. I mean, yeah. I feel movement in this. It feels energised. Yeah. Um, but there's also, I mean, there's wonderful elements like the, the light, the lamp bulb up there, the light bulb. Yes. Being the light bulb of the torturer, yeah. the intense yeah. Yeah. white heat, um, conflicting with this sort of can um, lamp that's being yeah. brought in, which is a candlelight. Yeah. So it's all about tension and conflict. Um, but actually, the the real thing about this is the faces, isn't it? I think yeah, that's what sticks with I think, everybody. I think, I think what it is, it's it's the it's the horror on the faces, yeah. and even the horror of the horse exactly. as well. Exactly. And the horse is a great symbol of sort of you know helping people in war, isn't it? You know because so many people rode horses in war, and it's a kind of a noble beast. And the bull, of course, is very much that the bullfighter mm. and the image of Spain. And these are two very iconic. Nationalist symbols, aren't they? They are, and actually, so, the the main. I, I think he's representing uh, Franco with with the uh, with the bull. You're absolutely right. I think, and 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 the um, the agony on the and horse's the horse face. is probably representing the Republicans. I think that's, that's one it. of the interpretations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the way I love the I love the articulation of it. So he's obviously applied Cubist principles, but the way that the horse's head almost tilts upwards in that at gasping yeah. scream, yeah, yeah. and it's the horse that's lacerated through. That's so right, yeah. in a way, that cut in the side of the horse there is the center of the painting. Yeah. It is also, the heart your, of it, it is also even if you go before the attack happened, mm. this was the nightmare of what might happen. You know, panic, terror, fear. You know, it's all there. It's etched across this mm. in every way, isn't it? And it's sort of what I like about it, like you said earlier, it's the black and white. Yeah. See, sometimes, you know, black and white imagery can can say so much more. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those great photographs of war in the 60s, you know, of the of the, uh, the young Vietnamese girl, it's in black and white, Same. even though colour photography is available. Uh, the photograph of the guy who's, who's, who's being shot in the head in the Vietnam War, it's in black and white. Same. You know, so some of the greatest uh, photographs are in black and white. And I think it's the way he uses that idea of the photographic school. Um, I think with Picasso, you know, he's such a enigmatic figure i mean later on you know people did say to him you know why did you stay in um why did you stay in, in nazi occupied paris you know he didn't have to go back to spain because mm. portugal was, was portugal, a, portugal was a neutral country yeah sweden was a neutral country you know he could have gone to america mm. um you know but he wouldn't have liked america because of you know he was a communist yeah um but it's interesting that you know in spite of his communism and all the rest of it, you know, he was probably one of the richest men in the world, wasn't he? I think his, an I think his estate is is is, is it, it's it's worth billions, isn't it? His estate. He was a celebrity. He was desirable, and he he had the world at his fingertips yeah. at a time where it was in turmoil. Yeah, but he also he, had a, he, he was had a dark bloody side. good. He was bloody good, as and he also had you know, I mean, he, he wouldn't have done well in the uh, the Me Too movement. Either, oh would he? no way! So he was a bit predatory towards women, wasn't he? And Incredibly there were, so. There were a sort of there was like a kind of. Um, 
you know, um, a revolving door of women that went in and out of his apartment, wasn't there? He's he's a really true. Again, it's one of these people that uh, we we eulogise and mythologise about. And once you actually look into their their personal life, it's that difficult thing of can you ever divorce an artist's life from their work? I mean, with something like this, I think. It has become almost disassociated in as much as it is iconic of I think war. we've done that. I think mm. now, I mean, I think with, with the modern world, as we move forward now, there's this idea of sort of, you know, we find out some terrible things of a person's past, so we then expunge that person from history. But some people survive, don't they? I mean... Mm. <laughs> Michael Jackson. I mean, for some reason, he, we, people have forgotten all the uh, the child abuse allegations, haven't they? It is a you bit see, worrying. Yeah. I think, like you said, no Frank Sinatra. There's his, there's his, you know, his intimacy with gangsters, and then his there's his wonderful voice. Where do you go with this? It's I find it difficult, you know, uh, expunging something in the past where it is great art. What do we do? Do we just say okay? This guy's flawed. Most people who are artists are that quite flawed. I think people. most people are most flawed. Most people are quite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think. I think this is. And the, also, this is the problem, he would it? not have survived. I mean, he he would not have survived the modern media. No, no uh, way. Into him. I mean, I think if you went into his is the way he treated women. I think that would be enough to damn him today. Definitely. There's no way that he could survive Oh, let alone today. his politics. And or when we start war, thinking about this. Or war, yeah. uh, but, but this is it. And I think the art stands alone at times with potency. Some of his work is, is not that great. You know, there's multiple old Picasso prints knocking about in galleries all over the world. And some of it's mediocre. Yeah. But he had a skill. He had a lightness of touch. So... The one I always think of is where he just draws the suggestion of the lady's bottom with a line, a yeah. single, you know, one line. And just that skill, that stroke, is what makes him a distinctly excellent And a lot artist. of people found a lot of his later work quite um, crude and pornographic, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you do look at some of it, and it, it, I mean, you know, you're an art expert and I'm not, but some of it I find inexplicable. Yeah, you know. Well, he also loved to court controversy on. and to court. Yeah. Um, he he created a myth around his work. So that's yeah. like with Guernica. He yeah. won't say he'll say it's a bull and a horse, but yeah, he yeah. knows he's written symbolism yeah, yeah, into yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's deliberately obtuse in terms of giving people what they want yeah. in answers, so that they go back to it and reinterpret it. He's clever. He's canny. He's good at his PR. Well, it's like <laughs> it's like with poetry, isn't it? People mm. they get great depth out of poetry, and and a lot of poetry is just straightforward writing. There's not there's no great depth mm. to some some poetry mm. and then when you start reading into it you can read a lot into a lot of poetry uh, but the but the poet if you got the poet there yeah. you probably you'd probably say i wasn't really saying that but this is the beauty of like you were saying it's at like the that beginning. Woody Allen film isn't it? Annie Hall where yeah, yeah. where he starts going on about um you know uh Marshall McLuhan's theories of uh of the media and all that and he gets Marshall McLuhan <laughs> and brings him forward and he says you don't know anything about my theory yeah. and then Woody Allen says wouldn't it be great if life was like this yeah, yeah so yeah. in a way it's like you know it's like this isn't would it be great if we could get Picasso and then he'd say what are you two talking yeah, but he wouldn't say that's the problem <laughs> yeah. with Picasso. He'd tell you the say, opposite. He's yeah. cantankerous. But think, it's but it's interesting, isn't it? It's something you were saying earlier, Frank, about um, where we are in, in terms of coming through modern art. The modernism movement in general and how it affected academia and scholarship and thought. We're in a point now where I think we do have to take individual viewpoints 
we look at this, we think Picasso, but actually we're seeing a mirror of ourselves an awful lot of the time, yeah, aren't yeah. we? In art, in music, in all these things. That What we learn a lot about is ourselves and how yeah. we perceive. And and that's the beauty of looking at art. What's also significant about this is, is the the way that uh, bombing has gone on. Mm. I mean, even though we proved that bombing didn't win, it didn't win the Second World War, it didn't have a major effect on, on, the, on the Second World War, it was boots on the ground, it was, you know, the Red Army in Berlin, it was people on the D-Day beaches, it was those people fighting on the ground that won the war. And strategic bombing was terrible. You know, I think that, you know, the, the British strategic bombing, they like, they, they missed, they bombed the wrong towns. Good you know, that's how bad it was. And at the end of the war, the Americans bombed four cities in Holland that were not, that, that, that were the wrong place. You know, so you've got that. And then, of course, there was that thing in, in Vietnam where they thought they could win the war. They didn't want the boots on the ground. So they started to bomb with napalm and so on. Recently, we've had the bombing. You know, we can, we can beat, a, you know, we can win the Iraq war with just bombing. Since subsequently, we found that, you know, the, the guerrilla tactics, we still go in for this bombing. When we know the bombing, we know, we absolutely know everyone who's a military historian or a historian of all the wars that we've had. Bombing has never won a single, you know, war. It's not even the Battle of Britain. We think that we won, but it was an inconclusive end. There was no winner. We weren't gonna we weren't gonna defeat Britain by surviving bombing. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't gonna we weren't gonna defeat Germany by surviving bombing. We had to get boots on the ground and go over there, and the Red Army had to go over there. So I think that we we got this in our modern society. You know, the bombing is still there, and we are still. I think now, you know, if you show photographs of children. Uh, and civilians, you know, in hospitals and all the rest of it after bombing, people balk at it. Yeah. You know, you've still got that Guernica factor where once people see bombing and they see the effects of it, and of course, you know, you get these reporters, they don't want to really show the aftermath of the bombing. They'd rather just say, oh, we bombed, uh, you know, a chemical works. They don't want to show the hospital where all the people who actually, you know, were injured and killed and children and all the rest of it. Because then we start to say, oh, God, yeah. I didn't back that. But it's the spectre of death, isn't it? And I think that's yeah. what the, the Picasso's image shows too. It's this new spectre of uh, an inexplicable faceless death that comes to you from the sky and you don't even know who it's, where it's going to hit. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely going to take out anyone, regardless whether you're guilty, innocent, it's, it's indiscriminate. But as you say, you know, it's a fantasy as much as it is a reality. But it hovers in people's consciousness today as well, the fear of it coming. And I think that's what makes the image so strong and powerful, don't you reckon? I think that that's, you know, that's a very good point. I think that we, we start off with this nightmare of bombing. And we all know, you know, bombing is terrible. We wouldn't like to have gone through that bombing, you know, in the Second World War. And it was terrible. What was different about the bombing that happened and the start was here in Guernica is that previously it was soldiers who fought in wars and men. You know, what we forget is all the people dying in the First World War, the vast majority of them were soldiers, Absolutely. male soldiers who died. Now, here we've got something different. Women and children and old people were the sufferers of civilian wars. So what you've got is, and that's why there's a morality tale here. Even when we go through the, you know, the Bomber Harris business about, you know, uh, you know, Churchill said when we started bombing, you know, Hamburg and Dresden, you know, well, they started it mm. and they're going to reap what they sow now. 
you know, and two, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, you know. But we know, don't we, that, you know, when we look at the the civilian casualty rates, you know, 600,000 German women and children and old people were killed in, the, in those bomb attacks, which didn't actually, even the Dresden attack, which is like two or three months before the end of the war, a war we were definitely going to win. <laughs> You know, we were definitely going to win that war and they were going to cave in and, he, and Hitler was never going to surrender yeah. because we were bombing. He didn't care about his own civilian population. So I think the bombing resonates and I think that's why this painting is so important mm. because it gives us something that's, it's 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 the past in the present. Well, this is it. And I think what you've got in this image, you've got the dead soldier in the foreground who is almost like a knight, a medieval yeah. knight, trained in combat, yeah. arms severed because it's not about one-to-one -one combat anymore. Yeah. And then you've got these the woman and the child and the this is equal 50-50 male-female ratio. Yeah. And everybody is suffering. Yeah, and you are right. yeah, so yeah. right. That is yeah. what has given this legacy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. God, it's good. Frank, listen, we've talked for ages. We've got to, to wind up, unfortunately. What an amazing experience talking to you. But also, this is a real lesson in why art history is such an exciting discipline. We've talked at length with one image, and that is the power of a really um, impressive artwork, isn't it? It can just yeah. take you on these journeys yeah, yeah, into yeah. the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have loved talking to you. Thank well, you. I'm, thank you. I've loved talking to you. What's your Twitter handle so people can follow you? Um, well, it's it's uh, it's F, F for Frank, X for Xavier, because that's my middle name. Oh. And then MC is the start of my surname, McDonough. And it's 1957. There you go. That's They'll it. get that. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.